Hello, my name is Isaac Keith Martinez, and welcome to Isaac's Haunted Beard. Speaking of hauntings, today we're going to be talking about John Carpenter's The Fog. Not only did I recently watch The Fog again, but I've watched The Fog twice this year. Yep. On February 8th of this year, and for the record, this year is 2020, I watched John Carpenter's The Fog for about the kabillionth time in my life to celebrate its 40th anniversary. That was on February 8th, and I recall it being a double feature that evening. I also paired it with Disturbing Behavior, which was kind of a shot in the dark of picking a movie that I thought might kind of match the tone of The Fog, and I was surprised how much the two movies had in common. I'm not going to go into that. If you trust me, try watching those movies back-to-back. You're going to see some similarities. I also recently rewatched The Fog on April 21st, but you know what? I know a lot of you rewatched The Fog on April 21st. Why? Because that's Fog Day. Duh. <laughs> Actually, I don't think it's officially called Fog Day, but it may as well be, because that's how horror fans treat April 21st. There's a lot of movie-themed holidays. There's Back to the Future Day. There's Alien Day. Uh, heck, there's even, as far as I'm concerned, Texas Chainsaw Day. <laughs> A lot of the times when a significant number is a part of the movie's plot or is on screen, that number can be used as a calendar date where fans of that movie celebrate that movie by watching it and deeming that day to be that movie day. And another common thing for people who are fans of a certain movie is to watch the movie they love, on the day that that movie takes place. Most movies don't take place in a single day. But every once in a while, there is a movie that takes place on a very specific day. So fans of that movie watch it on the day. A no-brainer would be Halloween. A lot of people watch Halloween on on, on the date of uh, October 31st. And in the film The Fog... It takes place on April 21st, so that's Fog Day as far as I'm concerned. And I admit, as a movie dork, I do watch The Fog on April 21st. I like The Fog. I like Not that I need an excuse to watch it, but I like having an excuse to watch it. But you know what I find interesting and kind of funny, you know, about these movie-themed holidays is I start to wonder, are we going to watch, or are you, you know, if you, if you also partake in this, are you going to watch this movie that you're celebrating on a movie holiday every year for the rest of your life? So for the sake of this conversation, let's just use fog day as an example. Are you going to watch the fog on April 21st, every April 21st for the rest of your life? Will you be 
on your deathbed with your loved ones surrounding you and you're saying your goodbyes and you say, if there's one thing that I really am happy that I did with my life, it's that I watched The Fog every year on April 21st. I've seen The Fog 68 times. Oh, it's a life well spent. <laughs> Is that going to be you? Is that going to be me? Gosh. I hope so. <laughs> Let's do that thing where we talk about the plot of the movie. I'm going to not go into details with this one. Just brief reminder of what the fog is about. The town of Antonio Bay is celebrating its 100 year anniversary. How will it celebrate? With a little cake? Maybe a little champagne? How about a little party? Ooh, I know. How about a little bit of fog that rolls into the town that ghosts come out of and kill you? Because, you know, that sounds like fun. 100 years ago, the six founders of Antonio Bay deliberately sank a clipper ship called the Elizabeth Dane so that the wealthy, leprosy-afflicted Blake would not establish a leper colony in Antonio Bay. They were like, we don't want your leprosy, but we do want your gold. And now, 100 years later, the ghosts of the crew of the Elizabeth Dane are back for vengeance. Happy birthday, Antonio Bay. Six must die. Okay, I know, that's not a really good... Uh, <laughs> plot summary, but that's the basic idea of, of why the ghosts that are haunting this town is haunting the town. The rest of the details, either you've seen it, or hey, I didn't spoil enough for you to, you know, have any parts ruined for you. You can watch it with complete surprise. This movie starts off with a quote written on the screen, and that quote is, is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream. And that quote is credited to Edgar Allan Poe. I don't know about you, but regardless of how neat that quote sounds, kind of feels like they're letting themselves off the hook. <laughs> like, oh, hey, I don't know. It's a dream within the dream. Anything can happen, right? Because here's the thing. There are some people, and I mean, I don't know. I don't know who these people are. Maybe maybe you, <laughs> maybe someone you know that have complaints about the logic that doesn't work in the film, The Fog. They're like, hey, wait a minute. If well, John Carpenter, the director of The Fog, is aware that some people have had complaints about the logic of the film, The Fog, and I have to admit, I have noticed a couple of things in the movie, but I'm not going to point them out because as a fan... I am more forgiving of these things. I just kind of chalk it up to aesthetic, like, hey, there's no specific reason for this thing to happen at this particular moment, but I credit it as being something that looks good visually in a horror film, especially a ghost story, so let it be. And what John Carpenter has to say about that, and this is a quote from John Carpenter, he says, it doesn't need to be logical. 
It's a ghost story. So there you go. I, uh, I agree with Mr. Carpenter. And not just because, because he's John Carpenter. If I disagreed with him, I would disagree with him. But I don't. I don't disagree with him. When I first saw the fog, gosh, this might be a little embarrassing to admit. I didn't really like it. I thought it was kind of dull, kind of boring. I felt like nothing much happened in it. And I am going to blame myself. Uh, I didn't go into it really, you know, quite prepared for for what to expect. I, I didn't know what kind of tone the film was going to have, what kind of story it was trying to tell. I think I just came into the film bringing to it what I expected from the movie, what I needed or wanted from a movie. And I feel like a lot of horror films that I saw when I was younger that were more uh, deliberate in the way that it chose to tell its stories, a little bit more lyrical in the way that it chose to tell its stories, you know, with a more um, poetic type of pacing and, you know, um, more of a storybook approach. I didn't want any of that. When I was younger, I suffered from the more um, kind of ADD <laughs> approach to wanting to watch a horror film. I needed something happening and something happening quickly and often and violently because that's what stupid young people want. You know, I grew up a slasher kid in the 80s. I needed lots of violence and lots of killing and lots of, uh, lots of, lots of fast-paced nonsense. And The Fog isn't that kind of story. So I just kind of dismissed it, you know, as boring. And it wasn't boring. I was boring. And then I watched, I don't remember why I chose to give it another chance, but of course I eventually did. And I think I liked it as soon as I saw it. The, the second time I saw it, I don't know how much time had passed when I first saw it and when I second saw it. But the second time I saw it, I immediately liked it. Um, okay. There's something that I didn't quite get or want to get about it the first time I saw it that I feel like I got the second time. But before I touch upon that, I just want to remind you that the movie starts with a campfire scene before the opening credits. There's a scene where John Houseman plays a character who is sitting on the beach by a campfire surrounded by children, and he's telling them a ghost story. And the ghost story he's telling them is the story about Antonio Bay and how, you know, how it did what it did with the people in the boat. And, and John Houseman's voice is perfect for ghost stories. He's exactly the kind of old man you want telling you ghost stories because everything he says just sounds so believable and so haunting and enchanting. And uh, I, I, before I go even further, I just want to also talk about something about that scene. Uh, there's a shot of John Houseman sitting by the fire telling the kids the ghost story. And then at one point, the camera really quickly zooms in on a close-up of him. That is one of my favorite shots in the movie. And if, you've, if you're really familiar with this movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But the point I want to make is, I think as, quick, as soon as the second time I saw the movie, when I was watching that scene, my brain went, oh, 
This is a campfire tale. This movie is what it feels like to be sitting around the campfire at night while an old man tells you a ghost story. And just like the way that particular old man delivers the ghost story, just the sound of his voice, the delivery of the story, the pacing of how he tells the story, that's that scene captures the feeling of the whole movie. And if you can put yourself into the mind of one of the children sitting around the campfire, listening to this old man telling you a ghost story, and if you can stay in that mindset for the rest of the film, that's what the film is supposed to feel like. And from then on, I was on board with The Fog. I have seen The Fog a lot. I've seen it so many times since then. And I like it a lot. I like that I'm able to change my mind. I think we all should give ourselves permission to change our lives. Uh, <laughs> change our minds. Oh, I almost said change your lives. Yes, if you change your mind, sometimes you can change your life. <laughs> You're allowed to. You're the boss of yourself. Just because you don't like something or you didn't like something when you were younger, it doesn't mean that you're not going to like it again when you're older. It makes sense. The older you get, the smarter you get, and the more mature you get. And art will play differently to you as you get older. It's kind of like food. When you're younger, you don't like certain foods. The yucky, ugh, yucky, I don't like vegetables. Or, you know, you try to get older, your taste buds change. And it tastes differently. Same with the way you absorb, the way your brain absorbs information, the way it absorbs art. You bring something different years later to the table because you're older, you're smarter, and you're more mature. It just plays differently to you. This movie stars Jamie Lee Curtis as one of the leads. Jamie Lee Curtis was in Halloween. Halloween was the movie that John Carpenter made right before he made this movie. So he followed Halloween with the fog. Isn't that cool that he would follow a horror film with another horror film without repeating himself? He was not a one-trick pony. He had the ability to tell a totally different kind of story. That's impressive. John Carpenter is a very masterful storyteller and filmmaker. I think there's three actors in this film that are considered leads. Usually a movie just has one lead, but this movie has three leads. The second would be Tom Atkins. Tom Atkins plays Nick Castle. That's his character's name. Nick Castle is also the name of the actor who wears the shape, the mask that Michael Myers wears in Halloween. So when you see Michael Myers on screen, that's Nick Castle. It's kind of an inside joke. Not a joke. It's not funny, but it's like an inside nod, you know? Adrian Barbeau plays the third character. Stevie Wayne is another character I regard as the uh, one of the three main characters. Actually, I've been calling her Adrian Barbeau my entire life. I had recently listened to the audio commentary for The Fog, and every time John Carpenter says her name, he pronounces it Adrienne. Adrienne Barbeau. You know, at the time that they made this movie... John Carpenter and Adrienne Barbeau were married. And this was, and I didn't know this 
this was Adrienne Barbeau's first feature film performance. This is the first time you've ever seen her in a movie. She had been in TV before, like in TV movies and stuff like that. She plays a, a but this is the first time you see her in a feature film. She she plays Stevie Wayne. She's a DJ. She seems to own the, the radio station that operates out of a lighthouse. All the music she plays kind of sucks. <laughs> um, it's funny how this is like the town's big radio station, but I mean, really, if that was your only big station, would you listen to it? It's kind of boring. It's just a lot of like slow jazz and stuff like that. But I will admit it that if it was contemporary music that she was playing on her station, or at least contemporary at the time, it could have dated the film because music can date a film sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. And in the case of this film, I actually think as much as I think it's a lousy radio station, I think it's a, a, a good thing that the music is this boring, slow jazz. Not only does it not date the film, but it also matches the tone of the film, which is this more you know, slower-paced ghost story. And I do notice that she does interrupt the songs a lot, way more than I think she would if this was real, but I do also kind of consider her the narrator of the movie. So her... Uh, her you know, talking to the people in Radio Land to me is similar to being a narrator of the film. Kind of like the Warriors. The DJ in the Warriors is like the narrator of the film, right? Charles Cyphers plays Dan O'Banion in this film. He was the sh uh, the sheriff in Halloween. He was Sheriff Brackett. And the name Daniel Dan O'Banion is actually a friend of John Carpenter. He was in the movie Dark Star. And he's also, well, in case you don't know, Dark Star is John Carpenter's first movie. That's an excellent sci-fi comedy. Seek it out. It's one of my favorite John Carpenter films. I don't hear as much people talking about it. Dan O'Banion wrote a lot of movies that you love, like Alien. And I, I particularly love a movie he wrote called Dead and Buried. Did you know he directed Return of the Living Dead? Why, yes, Isaac, I did know that. You're not the only person in town who knows these little trivia things, Mr. Smarty Pants. Nancy Loomis is in this movie. She plays Sandy. She was also in Halloween. She played Annie Brackett, Sheriff Brackett's daughter. Janet Lee is in this movie. She plays Kathy Williams. Janet Lee is mostly known for being in the film Psycho. Janet Lee is Jamie Lee Curtis's mom. And this is the first time... Jamie Lee Curtis and Janet Lee had been in a movie together, but it's not the last time because Janet Lee was also in Halloween H2O. And then, of course, we have Hal Holbrook, who plays Father Malone. Hal Holbrook has one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie next to... Um, the scene with the campfire. When I say, it's funny because I'm calling them scenes, but it's more like I'm just impressed with shots. Like the shot of John Houseman being zoomed in on really quickly during the campfire scene. Same thing with Hal Holbrook has this great scene, just because I like the shot, where Hal Holbrook's startles gently by quickly coming out of the darkness. This is something that's very difficult to describe just with my words. But when you watch it and you see her in the church, looking for Father Malone, and he just seems to come out of nowhere really quickly. 
from the darkness. It's really impressive. You know that scene where Jamie Lee Curtis is hitchhiking and she gets picked up by... Uh, uh, it's funny. I called her Jamie Lee. I do that a lot. I tend to not call them by their character names. I just think of them as their actor names. She gets picked up by Tom Atkins and she says to him, are you weird? And he says, yes, yes, I am weird. And she says, good, because the last person who picked me up was so boring. And I understand that it's a funny scene that's mostly played for laughs. It's cute, right? And it, it kind of kind of connects them right away, like they have a sen similar sense of humor. But also, like, to me it feels like she's asking this because she's nervous and she wants to break the ice and ask kind of a, you know, kind of a, a funny type of question to see how he would respond. But if you take it literally, like she's actually legit nervous, asking someone, are you weird? Think about what she's doing. She's hitchhiking in the middle of the night. Like that's weird, right? Who does that? That's, I mean, I would imagine hitchhiking is more of a daytime thing. And if you're hitchhiking in the middle of the night, you're kind of like, whatever you can get, right? I mean, who's going to pick you up? Who's traveling at that time of night? Who's going to pick up a hitchhiker in the middle of the night? Probably a weirdo. Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis end up hopping in the sack like a mere 10 minutes later. I am going to talk about something right now because of that scene that might be, as far as I can imagine, one of the most controversial opinions I could possibly have about movies. And that's the appeal of Tom Atkins as a sex symbol. All right, you ready for my controversial opinion? Here goes. I don't get it. <laughs> and it's not for me to get, you know, because I'm not the person that they're trying to target as the, the audience member who's going to look at Tom Atkins and go, mm, give me some. But I'd like to think that I can look at an actor or an actress and recognize the, the sex appeal. And, you know, for instance, you look at a movie like uh, Evil Dead, you know, Evil Dead 2. Bruce Campbell is, he's a handsome man. I see it. I see the appeal, the sex appeal, I understand as a cult film actor why so many people who love horror films and cult film actors would, uh, cult films would look at someone like Bruce Campbell and go, who, he's a sex symbol of cult films. Because really, there is a separation between sex symbols of cult films and sex symbols of mainstream films. Because mainstream movies, that's a whole different type of sex appeal. And that's a whole different type, it's a more mainstream sex appeal, right? You're appealing to a more mainstream audience. I'd like to think that everyone could recognize someone like Brad Pitt as universally handsome, but there's still a strong possibility that there's some weirdo out there who absolutely doesn't because they're so loyal <laughs> to their weirdness that they would look at someone like him and go, I don't, I don't see it. Maybe because he's too normal for you. Ah, but Bruce Campbell, on the other hand, hmm. He's a hot tamale. Okay, I get that. Because 
That's the kind of movies you watch. That's your world. Your only, your brain is wired to only really respond to that kind of storytelling. So someone like Bruce Campbell, that appeals to you, which leads to Tom Atkins. Tom Atkins plays all these parts in movies where he gets the girl, and usually a girl who's much younger than him. And a lot of his fans, like the male fans, will go, yeah, Tom Atkins is the man. He always gets the girl. A lot of the girl fans of his go, ooh, Tom Atkins, he was such a dreamboat. Really? He looks like your dad. <laughs> he just looks like some guy. Like, Bruce Campbell was clearly handsome. And you could say, well, charisma. You're like, really? Was Tom Atkins that charismatic? He has, to me, the same charisma as your dad. <laughs> Granted, I don't know your dad, but I think you understand what kind of point I'm trying to make. When you see Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis on screen together, to me, they don't have sexual chemistry. It just looks like she's hanging out with her dad. I don't want to get you too angry, so I'm not going to spend too much more time talking about this. I just had to get that off my chest. And there, I did it. This movie is rated R, but doesn't it feel like it should be rated PG? This does seem like a movie you could show a kid. It's not graphically violent. It does. I don't even remember too much examples of swearing. There's no nudity in it. Also, there is a remake of this film, which I remember hating it. I've only seen it once back in, uh, I think it's from 2005, and uh, I remember just despising it. And I rarely ever give movies a second shot if I hate them, but I have to admit, I am slightly curious. I, I think one of the things I remember hating about it was how, not only was it just a bad movie, but I remember not liking how they made some changes with the story. One of the things that the ghosts have to do is kill six people. Their whole thing is six must die. And one of the people who, gosh, this is a spoiler thing, right? Guy, you've seen the fog. The old lady babysitter who's watching Stevie Wayne's son, she dies. But if you go by horror movie rules, like tropes and, you know, traditions, she shouldn't have died. She shouldn't have been punished. She doesn't do anything wrong. She's a good character. However, in the novelization of the fog, it clarifies that this isn't a random murder. The ghosts kill only descendants of the six original conspirators. That makes sense. But that leads me to this question. Do you accept novelization information as canon? I'm on the fence about that. I mean, I don't read novelizations. Uh, at least I haven't gotten into that yet, but I'm not sure if I just immediately accept that as canon. Because what if I never read that? Did I never know that information? If I say, oh, this doesn't make sense to me, and somebody else who's read the book and goes, oh, yeah, well, in the novelization, this happens. And I'm like, well, I'm just supposed to accept that? The guy who wrote the movie and the guy who wrote the novelization is not the same guy. So does the guy who wrote the movie turn to the guy who wrote the book that's based on the movie and say, you speak for me. Whatever you think this means this is officially what it means. I don't know. I guess it's up to you. I kind of lean towards no. I love the final shot of this movie. Yeah, talk about talk about spoilers. I'm about to ruin the final shot. The final shot is where the ghost kills Father Malone. 
with a swipe of his sword and it cuts to black really fast and it says the title of the film, The Fog. Very poetic, especially for a low-budget horror film, which this movie does look like a low-budget horror film. And a lot of that is because it's filmed in wide, widescreen. So it has the look of a really grand film. When was the last time you've seen this film? If it's been a while and you'd like to revisit it, if you're subscribing to the Shutter streaming service, it's currently streaming on Shutter as of the release of this podcast. And it's $4 to rent across the board at all the usual places. If you want to collect it on Amazon.com, it's currently $8 on DVD and $20 on Blu-ray. And that Blu-ray is worth getting. That's from the Shout Factory. And it's really cool. Well, I want to thank you for spending time with me here today, talking about The Fog. I had a good time. I love these little conversations we have about movies. And just remember, if this has been anything but a nightmare, and if we don't wake up to find ourselves safe in our beds, it could come again. To the ships at sea, who can hear my voice, look across the water, into the darkness, look for the fog. Aloha.